0: come to the (laughs) pulpit with the prayer, Lord, give me a message. (laughs) Don't forget that we're going to be Seventh-day Adventists a couple times before the end of the year, and that means we're going to meet Saturday morning at 10 o'clock on Christmas Eve and Saturday morning at 10 o'clock on New Year's Eve, and we'll also be having a communion service which has been a long time coming and I look forward to that with great desire someone may ask when is the last time you lowered the shield of faith and I would say never because we're in an agona of contention and this is what I call this time in between a time in between two magnificent and universal alterations The first alteration being the alteration of our situation before God. And the second being the alteration of our condition, our very state and condition, including our bodily condition. That will be by resurrection. Resurrection accompanied by a universal transfiguration of the entire universe. In which our Lord will not only rule but his rule will have no end and no limits forever and ever. Whenever there's a sporting event, and I remember hearing this very early as a young boy when I would watch sporting events with my dad and grandfather or my Uncle Charles, we would, one of them would usually say, well, that team's going to win, usually the New York Giants, because they have desire. It wasn't so much the ability, it wasn't so much the high-profile players, but it was... Desire, the advantage of desire, and that's very true. You see a boxing match, you see the favorite and the odds-on favorite defeated because the young, young up-and-coming boxer had desire. It was the advantage of desire. In the Great Revolutionary War, better known as the War for Independence, when our colonies fought, their freedom. The advantage that gave them the edge was desire, the desire for freedom. The desire for freedom was much stronger than the lust to control by a foreign belligerent nation. The desire for freedom is very strong. So there's the advantage of desire and I would call that In this time in between, in this agona of contention, the advantage of the appetite for God, the advantage of the desire of God, the desire to see him in the beatific vision when we see him and when we become like him and we will become as he is. For we will see him as he is. There is no stronger desire that should grip our soul And Paul kind of made that clear when he said that his whole desire now that which moved him was a desire to apprehend and lay hold of him who had laid hold of Paul to overtake and to apprehend him, to fully apprehend the reality that is Jesus and Jesus who is the ultimate reality. So it's the advantage of desire The advantage of desire in a sports team, the advantage of desire in a boxer or a contender, the advantage of desire is ours as a gift from God. For this is an appetite that only God can give us. It's an appetite that overcomes all other appetites. When Jesus said to his disciples, I have food to eat that you don't know about that implies that he had an appetite that his disciples did not know of, an appetite for his father, for fellowship and communion with his father, for the utmost intimacy of fellowship, which the son enjoyed with his father. It is a food that we do not know of. And he said, my food is to do the will of my father. Before the doing of the will There has to be an appetite to do the will. Otherwise, there is no doing of the will. And God has granted us this desire. It is God in us both willing, desiring, and doing of his own good pleasure, that which is to his own desire. So there's an advantage of desire in this arena of contention, the desire to know him and to see him, as this song said this morning. And so, the scripture is very clear about this. And the word, the Greek word that I found, it comes a few times in the scriptures, not many, but enough. It's epipotheo. And it means to long after or to desire earnestly. Epipotheo. I think it's, one of the key words in Philippians 1.8, Paul said, I have a desire for you, a desire to be with you, fellow believers, a desire for your advance in grace, a desire for your victory in the conflict, a desire to be with you, epipatheo, I long for you, it says literally in the guts of the lamb, with the guts, the inner being of the lamb of God, epipatheo. It's a strong longing. It's a strong desire. It's stronger than something else in the scripture, which is epithumia, which is lust. In fact, it is a kind of lust. It's a kind of desire. And when it overcomes all other desires, then we have the greatest advantage in the conflict. In the middle of extolling her beauty and her charms, speaking of desire, the lover in Solomon's Song of Songs. He wrote a thousand songs. One made it into the canonical scriptures called the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon. And it's really a song of desire. And in that midst of extolling the beauty and the charms, of his lover, the lover, the shepherd in Solomon's Song of Songs says to his beloved until the day dawns and the shadows flee away. It's very beautiful aesthetic poetry here. Skia is the word for shadows. Until the day dawns and that literally means, and it's, it's, it's beautiful in the Hebrew and also in the Greek, until the day breathes, until the day is awakened and breathes. It's the, uh, a sense of life and a sense of dawning. And until the day dawns and the shadows, skie in the plural, in the Greek text, till the shadows are removed, literally. But it also, in the Hebrew, again, very poetic. The word nos, us means for flee, until the shadows flee away. Genesis one sixteen a says, and God made two great lights, the greater of the two lights to rule the day, and the lesser of the two to rule the night the lesser of the two. And that's when the shadows persist. Until the shadows are removed. I will go to the mountain, he said. I will go to the mountain. And here is the Gezerah Shawa. Connecting this verse to Hebrews 8, 5 with the words, The mountain. See to it that you build this tent according to what you saw of a pattern on the mountain, God said to Moses. Until the day fully dawns, breathes its full, in its fullest life. And until the shadows flee away totally, I will get me to the mountain, he said, of myrrh a mountain of bitter spice and the hill of frankincense and ascending incense speaking of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ speaking of the mountain called Calvary and the hill called Golgotha until I would say it in my own language as we've been developing this doctrine until The radical change and alteration of our condition through resurrection and until the restoration of all things brought about by the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I will go to the mountain called Calvary. I will glory only in the cross of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As a preacher, I will determine to know nothing. That Jesus Christ and him crucified on the mountain of Myrrh, the hill of frankincense. The day, or the age, before the incarnation of the eternal word was the night ruled by the lesser light, we may say, in another form of metaphor. The messianic day, the messianic age dawned With the incarnation of the eternal word, which is and always was and will be God. It's a day that breathes with the breath that is the life giving spirit of God. It is the day that's ruled by the greater light, but that light shines brighter and brighter until the light of a perfect day. It's a light on the king's highway, on the king's highway on the path of the righteous. This light shines more and more to a perfect noonday splendor when we see him in the beatific vision. This greater light begins with the smallest hints of dawn and shines brighter and brighter until it brings the perfect day for the path of the righteous one, Jesus the just... It's like the path that the sun takes until the day comes fully. Psalm 194B says, "In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun." Notice the gazeera sawwa, the word tent," once again. It is like a groom coming from his bridal chamber. It rejoices like an athlete running a course. We also have that metaphor in Hebrews 12one to 3. It rises from one end of the heavens, its circuit to the other end. Nothing is hidden from its heat. Again, a metaphor. Nothing is hidden from the gracious rule of the Savior Christ Jesus. There is no end to his government, no limits to the government of his grace. Grace will be on all. And in 2 Peter 1.19, we have the prophetic word, Peter said, after his experience in the Mount of Transfiguration. We have the prophetic word strongly confirmed now, to which you do well to be attentive. That prophetic word was once uttered by God in all the prophets, now made sure because it's been uttered in God's Son. This is my Son. Listen to him. To which you do well, he says, to be attentive. As to a lamp shining in a gloomy place, this time in between, this meantime, is that dismal gloomy place in one sense. And the only light to be focused on is the light of the prophetic word made more sure in the sun, in Jesus the sun. Until the day dawns, And the morning star arises in your hearts. That's when the dawning of the messianic age meets with the full dawning of that age in your hearts. When the love of God is fully poured out in our hearts and fully realized in glorification. So in that day, a day which has already begun, the shadows are removed In our analogy, the shadow sacrifices have been removed already. For as Hebrews 8 says, and let's begin with verse 1, now the sum of what we're saying is this, we have an archpriest who is of such significance that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a temple servant in the holy places of the true tent, the one pitched by the Lord, not man. You see, every archpriest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it's necessary that this priest also have something to offer. In fact, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest. Since earthly priests are those who offer gifts prescribed by the law, which gifts serve as a mere copy and shadow of the heavenly things? In the light of the finished work of Christ, the once and for all sacrifice, the shadows flee away. The shadows disappear. The shadows of the heavenly things, just as Moses was instructed when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for God said, See to it that you make everything according to the pattern you were shown on the mountain. The mountain, Mount Calvary, Mount Calvary. Mount Calvary, the Hill of the Skulls, Mount Golgotha. Until the day fully dawns and the shadows of this dismal age flee away, I will flee to the mountain of myrrh, the mountain of the bitter experience of my Messiah in experiencing God-forsakenness for all and the hill of frankincense for stored up in that mountain of myrrh is the ascending sacrifice the resurrection of Christ the breath of a new life and his ascension to the right hand of the father in that day the shadows are removed and so in our analogy the shadow sacrifices have been removed they have fled in the light of the splendor of the glorious self-sacrificing love of Christ. Because the once and for all and forever sacrifice, the self-sacrifice of the Lamb of God. So the mountain of Myrrh and the hill of frankincense in Song of Solomon 4.6 in our analogy to Mount Calvary and the hill of the skull, literally Golgotha. This is where we get to until the permanent alteration of the condition of all things occurs in the universal appearing of he whom I call Yahweh pierced. They shall see him whom they have pierced. Every eye will see him as every knee genuflects and every tongue acknowledges that this Yahweh pierced is Yeshua crucified. And speaking of Mount Calvary or Skull Hill, in Summa Theologica, Part 3, Question 46, Article 10, in answer to whether Christ died in a suitable place, the scholastics asked a lot of questions. Some of them were good, some of them got crazy. Of course, the extreme example is how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, and who's interested in that? Not me. But these Questions that made Summa Theologica are always very prominent in my mind, and I think about them often. The question was whether Christ died in a suitable place. Thomas cites John Chrysostom in reply to Objection 2. Chrysostom says in a sermon on the Passion, we're pulling out from the treasure chest things old and new here, John Chrysostom says, the Lord was not willing to suffer under a roof, nor in the Jewish temple, lest the Jews might take away the saving sacrifice, and lest you might think he was offered for for that people only. Consequently, it was beyond the city and outside the walls, that you may learn it was a universal sacrifice or oblation for the whole world, a cleansing for all. In reply to Objection 3, Thomas cites a scholar named Jerome from his commentary on Matthew twenty-seven thirty-three. Jerome says someone explained the place of Calvary as being the place where Adam was buried and that it was so-called because the skull of the first man was buried there. A pleasing interpretation indeed and one suited to catch the ear of the people, but still not the true one. That's according to Chrysostom. For the spots where the condemned are beheaded are outside the city and beyond the gates, deriving thence the name of Calvary, that is, of the beheaded. Jesus accordingly was crucified there, that the standards of martyrdom might be uplifted over what was formerly the place of the condemned. But Adam was buried close by Hebron and Arba, as we read in the book of Jesus, Ben-Naveh. But Jesus was crucified in the common spot of the condemned. That's a beautiful statement. Jesus was crucified in the common spot of the condemned rather than beside Adam's sepulcher to make it manifest that Christ's cross was the remedy not only for Adam's personal sin, but also for the sin of the entire world. And so a lot of this speculative theology, a lot of the scholastic theology so criticized today really has a benefit, I think, when you think of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universal impact of his reconciling work on the cross he was crucified in the common spot of the condemned to that I would add yes and his condemnation was experienced for all for as by Adam's one sin all were brought into condemnation so by the one righteous act of Jesus Christ all were made righteous all were made justified In becoming sin and a curse. Both of which bespeak separation from God. Both sin and a curse are defined as separation. In becoming sin, becoming sin. As we said last week, he became separation from God. And that's because... I think there's another reason why I like to call him instead of great, I used to do this in my notes, great high priest, now it's great arch priest. And that's interesting because he filled in that gap of separation himself between man and God, between humanity and God himself. He fills in the gap as our great arch priest. He becomes the bridge between the gulf that was fixed in that parable of the rich man and Lazarus. There is an eternal gulf fixed, and we can't cross from one way to another, said Lazarus and Abraham to the rich man. But there's one little thing that entered the picture the cross of Jesus Christ, the bridge that bridged the gulf so that even those who were once considered to be in Hades make the trek across to the heavens. And so, in becoming sin and a curse, both of which bespeak separation from God, Jesus cried, My God, in his becoming of sin, and my God, in his becoming of a curse for us I'll say that again Jesus cried my God once to illustrate his becoming of sin and my God again to illustrate he had become a curse for us for following this double vocative or this double cry he cried why have you forsaken me but then he said this and this is rarely added to what he said and he said this Why are you so far from helping me? So far from my cries. Now, we can have somewhat of an experience of that in this life, even though he's not far from us, even though he's not far from our cries. And when we have experiences like this, when we wonder why God seems to be so far away from helping us, then we are the most privileged of all people because we are getting to experience and to identify with the sufferings of Christ, which will be followed by deliverance and preservation and acts of deliverance on our behalf as resurrection followed his crucifixion. Why so far from helping me? So far from my cries. In times like that in our lives, desire increases to know him and to be with him and to see him face to face. Far away in the Hebrew is the word Rahak. And it's R A H O Q Rahok. And in the Greek it's Macron, not the French prime minister, but Macron. Macron, as in Luke 15 13, the sun wandered away into a far away place. The sun in a faraway country. This, of course, even the prodigal son illustrates Jesus going into a far country from his father, far from his father, to endure the cross. It's also found, this word macron in the Greek, is also found in Ephesians 2.13. Those of you, that's really all of us, who were far away, macron, were made near, angus, angus, drawn near. And so... We also have in Ephesians 2.17 made near by the blood of Christ and 2.17 says that when Christ came he preached good news to those who were near his people, the Jews and to you who were far away, Macron and peace to those who were near, Angus. And so the word far from God, indicates separation. There's another word that indicates separation. And I've used it in Hebrews 2.9. It's chorus, C-H-O-R-I-S. It looks a little bit like charis, grace. And so we have two different translations in Hebrews 2.9. One is, by the grace of God, he tasted death for everyone. The other is chorus apart from God far from God he tasted death for everyone he experienced absolute death which is absolute separation from his father he wasn't just quoting a verse or rehearsing scripture when he said my God my God why are you so far from me At that moment, the God man who knew his purpose so well throughout his ministry didn't know the purpose because he was separated from God. He was separated from even the knowledge of his purpose, separated from all that God is in that supreme act of self sacrificing love that will never be measurable and never be limited to our understanding. Ever. there will always be something lacking in our full apprehension of that and so I think both of these pertain it is by the grace of God that he tasted death for everyone and that's grace will come to everyone as Revelation twenty two twenty one 21 says the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be to all panton. But I also believe that chorus fits he far from God. Why? Because it says, why are you so far from me? Can we say far from God? Can we? When he says, why are you so far from me, from the cross? Why have you abandoned me? Left me down in this. till the shadows totally flee away in this time in between, that's where I want to get to. The mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. The mountain of myrrh called Calvary. The hill called Golgotha. So the word far from God indicates separation as does this word, "chorus." theu. chorus, theu, meaning separately, without or apart from God as an alternative for "charis" theu by the grace of God or kariti theu. A.T. Robertson writes off such an alternative as Nestorian. People write things off pretty quickly, and they say, well, you're Nestorian. You're, you're going toward the heresy of Nestorianism. And I disagree because by Nestorian, A.T. Robertson no doubt means a heresy that came up in the early centuries of the church age in which Nestor said that Jesus is two persons. He's not one person with two natures, but he's actually two persons. And so when you're saying that he was far from God, you're saying that he must be two persons and that one person was separated from God. But I tend to disagree because separate from God actually means that this God-man experienced in the mystery of the cross and the just and mysterious law of the cross a separation that's impossible for us to understand or describe. Robertson writes such an alternative to Nestorian origins. And I disagree that he, this is Nestorian... Because Jesus died far from God does not say that he was merely a human person distinct from God or a human person distinct from his divinity. But he, the God-man, became sin and became a curse for us and in that becoming was far from God, his Father. I've had experiences where I've been beside myself. I'm still myself, but I'm beside myself, either in great joy or in great shock. That Jesus died far from God does not say that he was merely a human person distinct from God. He is the God-man and always was the God-man since his incarnation and during his ordeal of the cross. And it was this God-man, one person with two natures, who became sin and became a curse for us. This is the mystery of the cross. Jesus wasn't just quoting Psalm 22 because he was rehearsing scripture. He really was experiencing the separation of God-forsakenness as having become sin and a curse. How do I know this? Because in this time in between, I've made it my goal to get to this mountain and to make my way to this hill and to get there and stay there until the day fully dawns, until the beatific vision, which we long for and have great desire for. The advantage of desire in this conflict Of the time in between is our desire to see him as he is. The beatific vision. So I say we may also see Christ's crucifixion on the place of the skull, literally Golgotha, a.k.a. Calvary, because there was the shattering of the enemy's skulls. As Psalm 67.22 in the Septuagint puts it, Psalm 68:21 in the English translation he crushed his enemies' heads his enemies being sin and death also known as Hades and so when i go there i go to the place of the victory over sin and the victory over death the victory over sin in his crucifixion the victory over death in his resurrection I go there. I don't really want to know anything apart from Jesus Christ and him having been crucified, raised, exalted, seated, coming again. Oh, I can go there anytime and stay there. And I can go elsewhere. I can think of other things and do other things, like the old poem of the soldier going to war And his wife pleaded, don't go, don't go. And he said, I could not love you, dear, so much, loved I not honor more. And how that pertains, I could not love you, family, so much if I had not loved Jesus more. And the more I love him and the more I prioritize him, the more I love you, you see, the more I love you. I could not love you so dearly if I didn't love the Lord even more. That's desire. That's the advantage of desire. That's the advantage that gives you the meaning of discipleship. And it's a gift. It's not something that we charge up in our own will. The most offensive thing Jesus really said in the Bread of life discourse that Brian's doing so great a job on. As he said, unless the father draws you, nobody can come to me. Unless the father draws you, nobody comes. Unless the father drags you, in other words, like a fisherman drags a net of fish, you don't come to me. That fish is going to stay out in the sea until the fisherman throws the net and drags the fish in. Otherwise, the fish isn't going to just jump in the boat. Oh, this is great. Take me home and fry me in a pan. Not going to happen. But they were offended at this. You know why? He assaulted the citadel of their will. Everybody wants to make salvation something I willed. I did. I believed. I invited Jesus into my heart. I repented. I surrendered. I gave up this. I gave up that. I My will is somehow involved in the salvific work of God. It isn't. The only will that's involved, the only human will involved in the salvific word and work of God is the will of Jesus Christ. And that's the only will that's involved in a true spiritual life. I'll take the old stony heart out of you, he said, and put a new heart of flesh in you. Guess what that heart is? The heart of Christ himself the splankna of Christ. It's the love of Christ that controls us. So they went away and followed him no more. Many did, many did. And that's a point of offense. If you preach the gospel truly as the unconditional grace of God, that is a challenge to the whole man, including the will. Not just the merit, but the will. The citadel of the human will was assaulted by the Messiah. That's why they they left him. Born again, not by the will of man. Born not by the will of man, but by the will of God. He assaulted the citadel of the human will. Many went back and followed him no more. The only thing that keeps me following, if I've followed, and there have been many times when I've failed in following, it's because he's given me a gift of desire. And it doesn't go away in the deepest moments of deprivation, trial, delay. It stays there. I was praying today for the Christians in Nigeria. They're being killed under persecution. Killed. Did I pray that there would be no persecution in the world? Did I pray keep us from persecution? No, I prayed, according to Revelation 14 and Revelation 13, this is the time for the perseverance of the saints. I prayed for the fortitude of Jesus Christ to strengthen them. And when it comes to my time, I'm not going to pray, oh, Father, save me from persecution or even save me from a death like this. I'll pray, give me the fortitude to face it like your son did. Give me the perseverance of Jesus. Because what a better way to check out of this place than to follow his path. So I pray for the. Christians in Nigeria and other places where they're being killed for their faith. If you don't believe it, you can look it up. Just get your phone and tap it in. You'll see it's happening. So his enemies that he crushed at that hill, on the hill of Golgotha, and it really would be neat if Adam was buried there, but we don't really know that because the person who wrote that he was buried in near Hebron in Arba was not a canonical writer, so we don't know. But either way, the cross was planted in the skull of the old man. It was planted in the skull of Palaios Anthropos. So... Let's go there and stay there until the shadows of the lesser light and the shadows of the night pass away completely. Let's continue to know nothing apart from Jesus Christ and him crucified, apart from God. The once and for all sacrifice makes the shadows flee away. And our occupation with Jesus Christ and his once and for all sacrifices makes the shadows, many of the shadows of our mind and our Psyche, our psychological makeup, flee away. The, the The advantage of the appetite for God is a cure for a thousand psychological maladies, addictions, diseases, lust patterns, covetousness, ambitions, destructive self ambition. And so that's what I think we need today. What's wanted and I use the word wanted on purpose, is an appetite for God, a desire for God. What's needed is a psychic conversion, which I'm only beginning to understand, something that Lonergan wanted developed and Duran began to develop, and I'll explain that as we close. But speaking of that once-and-for-all sacrifice, Fleming Rutledge wrote about the word ephapax, which is a key word in Hebrews, E-P-H-A-P, means once and for all and she says the word meaning once and for all was very important to the author of Hebrews and should be very important to us it is repeated four times Hebrews 7.27, 9.12, 9.28 and 10.10 the unique event of the crucifixion she says is fully sufficient nothing further can be or need be done. Everything has changed now that Christ has made the once-for-all sacrifice of his own blood, replacing the blood of the sacrificial animals that could never take away sin. Unlike the dumb beasts who had no choice in the matter, Jesus was a fully sentient human being who gave himself up for us in the fullest and most intentional way. This action taken by the Son of God has dramatically altered the situation Before God. Good choice of words there, Fleming. There is now no barrier or curtain between us and him, since Jesus himself is our high priest forever. One of the reasons why the curtain was torn in the temple from top to bottom in the cry of Jesus' voice. And as we know, the rocks were exploded around that area, and people came out of the graves and walked around Jerusalem because the rocks exploding were a picture of the Lord taking out the rocky, stony hearts and replacing them with a stone with a heart of flesh. That's what the New Covenant is all about and the New Covenant community, and I'm introducing that exegetically by doing this. So this forever high priest is also the sacrificial lamb, and his sacrifice has come with the dawn of the messianic day where the shadow sacrifices are no longer in vogue paul alluded to this in fact when he said now the night is almost over the day is near so put on the works of, put off the works of darkness like you'd put off your night clothes and put on the armor of light it's hard for us to understand in modern day america because people wear their pajamas as a, to the 7-Eleven. They don't take off the night clothes, so it's a difficult metaphor. So put yourself back in the days when people actually got out of their pajamas, put on clothes, and went out to the public. So put off the works of darkness like you put off your night clothes and put on the armor of light. So this day already breathes, and I already breathe in it, and so do you. We breathe in this day that already breathes until the perfect day, the radical alteration of the universal condition in the new creation of all things. We get to Mount Calvary and the hill of Golgotha, where the God-man experienced the bitter wages of sin for all of humanity and offered himself without blemish to God through the eternal spirit. The Lamb of God himself is what this archpriest had to offer and did offer to God, resulting in the purification of sins. He entered the authentic holy places of heaven with his own blood. So here's an old thesis as we begin to close, an old thesis. You've heard it before. It's thesis 71. Jesus Christ is the kind of archpriest we need because he is our inclusive representative throughout the time between the radical and permanent alteration of the human and creational situation and the radical and permanent alteration of the human and creational condition. This change of situation occurred in the Christ event on Mount Calvary on the Hill of Frankincense in what is traditionally called the First Advent. The anticipated change of condition will happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Just like the resurrection of Jesus occurred in such an atomic moment. It will be a miracle of God's all-powerful grace rooted in his invincible love. So here's a new thesis. Faith, the assurance of hope for things, working together with love, discerns the totality of God's love in the permanent alteration of the human cosmological situation, which is a present reality in the permanent alteration of the human and cosmic condition. That's our confident expectation. So today I would say, wanted an appetite for God. This struggle is going to be bitter unless you have an appetite for God. Discipleship is a chore and really an unrealistic thing altogether unless you have an appetite for God. What is wanted in this time in between is an appetite for God. Let me say it this way blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be full. They will be satiated satisfied To hunger and thirst for righteousness, as the Macarism says in Matthew 5, 6, is simply to hunger and thirst for God. Blessed are the people who have an appetite for God. To be full is to be filled up with all the fullness of God, Ephesians 3, 19. It doesn't just say that we may know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. It goes on to say, and that we may be filled up with all the fullness of God. In Ephesians 3.19. No one hungers and thirsts for righteousness unless they're graced with an appetite for it. For righteousness. And I wasn't really hungry and thirsty for righteousness until it was defined to me as the saving act of God, which culminates in his appearing. An appetite for righteousness is an appetite for God, the righteous Father. For when Jesus addressed him in the great archpriestly prayer, he said, O righteous Father, unless you eat my flesh, he said, Jesus said, and drink my blood, you have no life in you no breath in you, no life. We eat the flesh of Jesus and drink his blood because we have become hungry for his flesh and thirsty for his blood. That carries the metaphor into its offensive regions. It's another way of saying we hunger and thirst for righteousness, the saving act of God and our saving Redeemer. Which saving act is one with the person and the death of Jesus Christ? To eat the flesh of Jesus and drink his blood means to appropriate the most intimate fellowship with him. A fellowship that cannot be prosaically described. And so we need a psychic conversion, which means an aesthetic transformation in which we see the beauty of God and the beauty of the word he uttered in Jesus Christ. It requires a psychic conversion for us to relate to such language as Jesus used. For, to use Duran's language, psychic conversion enables a person, he says, among other things, to approach some understanding of the aesthetic form of God's revelation in Christ Jesus. And so we see in Matthew 24 things like, where the bodies and corpses of people are, there will the eagles be gathered together. We don't see that. We see that in an aesthetic way, knowing that the eagles were the Roman standards, the golden standards of the Roman soldiers, and that the bodies there were the bodies of the Jewish revolutionaries in the period of A.D. 30, not some futuristic thing, some prosaic thing that follows the rapture or some other prosaic teaching. Recently, I heard a rabbi and I shared it with some of you who said that the first letter in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, is B for Bereshith, and the last is the N, the Hebrew N at the end of the Amen in Revelation, and he said that it spells Ben, B-E-N, son, the son, and he said that all of biblical revelation is the son, and that really resonated with me because of the NRK of Genesis 1-1 and the closing grace of God be with you all, the whole thing being a revelation of the Son. It's also interesting, and I didn't really get this until I had a psychic conversion of my own, when I read Josephus, when the Romans had surrounded Jerusalem in, and the siege, and they began to put up their big siege ensigns with their catapults, it catapulted these large round stones that wreaked tremendous destruction, not only killing the first people that it hit, but going on to destroy and destroy. The first stone that was cast hit the night, hit the light of the sun, and it, was, it came across as a huge, brilliant, white stone hurling through space. And Josephus is the one who said, that the Jewish warrior on the parapet said, here comes, and he didn't say eben for stone, he said ben for sun. Here comes the sun, the son of man. And this is what Jesus meant when he said, you shall see the sign of the son of man coming with glory. It was the invasion of the Roman armies, Destroying the old temple, the old way, the old sacrifices. The shadows were fleeing away. And that word Eben and Ben came together in a beautiful package. And Jesus said this in, to his, the overcomers in Revelation. He said, I will give you a white stone with a name upon it that nobody knows but the bearer. And we know the white stone is the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. That comes with an aesthetic appreciation of God through a psychic conversion. The whole quote from Duran that I read in What is Systematic Theology? reads like this, and I'm almost closing. See, I I asked God for a message, and it's literally piecing together, so you're seeing it born now. Usually I have it, and and I've got it tucked like a ball, and I'm, I'm a running back, but... This time it's forming while I'm, I'm getting the handoff. Let's just say it that way. I do have some notes. But the whole quote reads like this on page 92 of what is systematic theology. I've got billions of notes all jumbled together here. But he said, psychic conversion enables a person, among other things, to approach some understanding of the aesthetic form of God's revelation in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say, it allows one to gain some analogical understanding of the divine drama in which the eternal Trinitarian love chose to manifest itself in the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, I would add something to that. What I think a psychic conversion is, something that happens in the depths of your soul, it enables us, among other things, to have an appetite for God. That's what a psychic conversion does. So in this connection, I considered Psalm 42, which says, for the choir director, a maskil of the sons of Korah. Korah were temple servants. They served at the entrance of the old tent of all places. In Psalm 42, as a deer longs, epipotheo in the Greek text epipotheo longs, desires, has the most desirous appetite for. As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long. The Hebrew is arag to long for. the he, The Greek is epipotheo I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. When I when can I come? and appear before God. Ultimately, that's the beatific vision. The Septuagint translation is Psalm 41 instead of 42, and it begins with these words, regarding completion, which is the whole theme of Hebrews. Aistotelos, it says. And then it says regarding understanding. Regarding completion, regarding understanding, we strive for complete understanding, never attaining it until we see him face to face. Then it says, pertaining to the sons of Korah, and we know from First Chronicles nine nineteen, 19, Shalom, son of Korah, son of abiasath son of Korah, and his relatives from the household of the Korahites were assigned to guard the thresholds of the tent. And so the tent, again, by Gezira Sawa, appears here. Their, their ancestors had been assigned to the Lord's camp as guardians of the entrance. So the Greek sounds more like this in the NETS Just as the doe longs for the springs of water, so my soul longs for you, O God. My th- soul thirsted for the living God. When shall I come and appear? to the face of my God that is the gift and the advantage of desire that's the motivation the prime motivation discipleship as we like to call it is a wonderful pleasure with the desire the advantage of desire Psalm 84, in fact, says, I long and yearn for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God. They go from strength to strength. Each appears before God in Zion. You have come to Mount Zion. We go from strength to strength. That's why we're here in this building, in this place right now. We go from strength to strength to strength as we appear before God in Zion. So Psalm eighty-four, which is eighty-three in the Septuagint, says, regarding completion again, over the wine vats pertaining to the sons of Korah, again guardians of the tent. How blessed are your coverts, O Lord of hosts, your tents. My soul, there's the psychic conversion, my soul Longs, epipatheo in the Greek, same as in Philippians 1 8, and faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh rejoiced in a living God. They go from strength to strength. The God of gods shall be seen in Zion. The God of gods who is seen in Zion, is none other than Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. A new covenant, a better covenant, the everlasting covenant. Ultimately, this is what's called the beatific vision, best described in 1 John 3, 2 as seeing God as he is and as a result being made like him. When we see him as he is, we shall be like him so to sum up this I guess thanks for the message Lord I'll sum it up a psychic conversion according to my admittedly limited understanding transforms a person's appetition or appetite from lust to acquire lower objects in this life to a strong desire to acquire higher objects even the highest object of all that being to lay hold of And to possess the full apprehension of the reality that is Jesus, or Jesus Himself, who is reality. Father, grant us this gift. We ask you as our Heavenly Father. Our earthly fathers, by comparison, are evil, and we couldn't ask them for this gift. Our earthly fathers were good men in the majority but by comparison, evil, when compared with you, O righteous Father. I ask you for the gift of a desire to know you, of a desire. I ask you for the advantage of desire in the spiritual agona. I ask that this message today will communicate the desire and the desired object, even Jesus Christ our Lord. May this desire be our advantage In this time in between. And may you grant us the fortitude and the perseverance that is in Christ Jesus. And pour out in our hearts the love of God. Grant us desire, Father. Grant us this gift. Grant us this advantage. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.